right back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. One of the reasons I like to read that, uh, the, the whole context is that we got to keep that before us and it helps us do that. It's really what he's saying there is that there's a certain way to look at the body and uh, the uh, gifts are meant to that purpose. So as we study gifts, and especially whether the gifts perhaps are for today or not, or even if they're not, let's just say for a moment that all gifts are still valid today. Uh, if they don't meet the, don't fit the purpose of the gifts, if they aren't edifying, if they aren't bringing together unity uh, and bringing glory and honor to the Lord, then uh, they're of no purpose, whether they're still for today or not, right? So that's kind of one of the safeguards uh, in all these things that we can uh, keep before us. Uh, last week we looked at the gift of knowledge. We saw that it is a gift to understand, to know and to understand the scriptures. The gift of wisdom is the gift to see the relevance or application of the scriptures. And faith is the gift to act upon the scriptures. And I think in each case these is above and beyond the norm. In other words, these are people who are especially gifted to be able to do this and maybe especially in times of need. The spirit comes upon those to help in some of these matters. We also saw that we are using uh, the practical and historical points instead of primarily exegetical to support our view that we no longer need the sign gifts. That's That's quite a statement, but if you've been here, perhaps you understand what I'm saying there. There are, obviously there's good men who disagree on whether any or all of the gifts still uh, are to be seen and whether some have passed away. And while I believe, and I'll try to show from the text, especially when we get to chapter 13 and 14, why I believe the sign gifts have passed away, there's still going to be that that quandary. Not all, you know, see it quite the same way. But I believe that if we look at the practical way in which these things are manifest, as well as what we see in church history, that further bolsters the position that I take that the sign gifts are no longer for us today. And so that's kind of where I've been coming at some of these things. This allows for their use by our sovereign Lord, but not for them to be considered the norm or useful among mature uh, church. In other words, the Lord can do with what, can give whatever gifts you want to at any time and any age, and I'm not gonna, you know, and that's all well and good. That's the sovereign Lord's, uh, prerogative. But, um, that doesn't mean that they are to be the norm, uh, as well. And we'll make some more statements about that as we go on. Much of this is because they are subjective and cannot be verified and so cause more harm and confusion and good. And one of the practical supports that I believe I have in my position is that the gifts that are subjective so that you really don't know for sure if someone says I have a word from God, you don't, you, there's no way to verify. And any gift that cannot be verified, I think we're on shaky grounds. When especially we make that the norm and expect that in the church services. So those are some of the things that we have been uh, dealing with. And so we began to look at a list of the gifts in the New Testament that, that Paul lists in 
1 Corinthians 12 and how they work are worked out in the church. And our primary directive is that all gifts are for edification given by God for his glory and the good of the church. And so any gift or use of a gift that doesn't meet that criterion, then in my mind anyway, is a, uh, I have no interest in it. In other words, if it's not any good, and I'll talk about these things later, but for instance, the uh, what some call the prayer language, where somebody just all of a sudden has their own little private prayer language. Well, you know, whatever. If if it's not serving us as a body any good, then I'm, I don't want to see it in the church. Why would we? What good is it? If you want something at home, that's your business. But if it doesn't edify the church, we don't need to see it manifested in the church. And I believe that that is one point that Paul will especially drive home in chapter 14. I also questioned why the showy gifts that are, you know, miracles and tongues and things like that are no longer needed and can't edify and, and, and don't edify why they would be the emphasis of, of a church service. You know, and we know there are those groups that take these things and they, that becomes the emphasis. Things that really don't edify they're showy, they cause a lot of emotion, but they don't actually uh, do anything. And why would that we want that to be the norm? And so even in Corinth, the gifts of tongues were producing pride. And that's a, when we, when there's no question that that was from the Lord. Paul, Paul doesn't say they aren't supposed to be doing them, but they had become a source of pride. They were being used in the wrong way. So I may not be able to conclusively show or prove from the word to you that tongues have passed away, for instance. But I can, I think, easily show that what passes for tongues today is, by and large, not scriptural. And uh, so I will try to make those points. Now, last week, I did not get to the last one, which is the gift of healing. So last week, we we were caught up in our sermons, and then I immediately... Uh, drop the ball again. So I want to finish that last sermons up to, uh, today and get as far as I can in uh, the uh, next sermon. But as far as the gift of healings go, and again, this is one of our sign gifts, a gift that I believe was given for a purpose, a temporary purpose. Um, the question is whether this means, excuse me, yeah, yeah. Uh, the gift of healing is a sign gift, so it was given temporarily to demonstrate something. And the question then is whether this means that they are to be considered normative for this age, or is this merely because at the time he wrote them, they were still being given. In other words, Paul does mention this right along with other uh, permanent gifts, but does that mean that they have to be considered permanent or is it just because they they happen to be uh, given at that time? So Paul, br- you know, brings them up as an example, and I think that would be the case. I think that we cannot divorce the use the gifts of healing with history because there is no evidence that anyone since the apostolic age healed like Jesus and the apostles did. So you, you see, I am going to use practical. And the historical evidence is a, is a way to interpret scripture, and I don't think that's always wrong. Uh, 
but it's, it's, you got to be very careful about some of these things. In other words, so first of all, as we think about healings, and we think about what people who say they have the gift of healings today, is there anything about the way they exercise those healings that doesn't look like what went on in the New Testament? And I think the answer is resounding absolutely yes. Does anybody use that the gift of healings in the way that Jesus and the apostles did? Many have claimed it, but no one can prove it. And I'm unsure why even among what we would call Calvinistic charismatics, there is much about tongues. You know, there, there seems to be certain gifts that they hone in on, uh, whether it be words of prophecy or tongues. But you don't. But even they seem to know better than to touch healings and miracles, the gifts of healings and miracles, because uh, that's they know there's a problem there. But my complaint would be then. If you're going to dismiss uh, miracles and tongues, then why can't you dismiss uh, miracles and healings? Why not dismiss tongues? In other words, if, it, if, a, if it's a sign, it's a sign. And we're going to see here a little bit later that these things were, that the word sign was used in reference to them. They were definitely signs. They meant something to the people back then. So I think a case can be made that they are not for today. But... Again, the first thing is, if you're going to say, I have the, the, the gift of healing, and yet you cannot heal in any way like Jesus and the apostles did, then why do you claim that for yourself? Why, why do you say, well, I have the gift of healing, but it's kind of like the knockdown version of it? Uh, because that, that's not the gift that we read about in the New Testament. This is not to say that God doesn't heal. It doesn't sometimes do so in a miraculous way today. But the big difference is that it is always a result of prayer by God's people and not by someone uh, just doing it on his own will. In other words, I believe that Jesus, that God heals. And I, I have no doubt that God sometimes heals in a miraculous way. We'll define a miracle here in a moment. But that's different than someone saying, I have the gift to heal. And to exercise it whenever I want to. Because you find that those who say they have a gift to heal uh, seemingly can only exercise it under very tight situations. And, and again, it is not the way that was done in the New Testament. <clears throat> Other than, uh, you know, when, when they healed, uh, it was when they chose to heal. And sometimes even when someone, uh, their shadow passed by on somebody, they were healed. And, and, and you don't see that today. You say, well, you know, Benny Hinn or whoever, they, they, they claim to be able to heal when, when, you know, do it at their will. Uh, but of course there's a huge difference that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Other than that, it, it is, uh, by, when we pray for healing, uh, for instance, uh, when, when I was in New York, there was a girl there who came down with lymphoma. Uh, a mother, a young family, and uh, they asked the elders to come and to pray, according to James 5, to anoint her with oil and to uh, pray for her. And, and we did that. Now, now, I believe, just quickly, that the the context of, John, of James 5 is that someone has probably fallen into some sort of sin, and their, their uh, sickness is a result of that, and it is a chastening by the Lord. 
And they've come to the point to realize that, and they've repented, and they're asking now that the Lord would heal them. So maybe much like 1 Corinthians 11, where people were sick and weak and dying because of their sin, right? And so I believe that, that James 5 would be, that's the context, the best I can understand it, right? But, but even so, she wasn't aware of that in her life, and, and but we did talk to her about sin and whether that's a possibility, but we did that. On the, on the other side of this, I don't, there's no evidence to me that the Lord actually healed her through that. She's doing okay today, but it was uh, clearly, it seemed to be through going to the, the medical uh, establishment, and that's what, what did it, you know, so that's what it is what it is. But, but I say all that to say that clearly uh, the Lord heals, and then sometimes the Lord heals at prayer, or sometimes the Lord just heals miraculously on his own. And that's all well and good, but that's different than saying that I have the gift to heal as they did in the apostolic era. Uh, the, um, you know, James said to bring the elders and have the elders anoint this person with oil. Why didn't James say, go find somebody who has the gift of healing and bring them to heal? I think there's a very good reason for that, because that wasn't the norm. That was something that was passing away. And that when it was going to be the norm for the church age, it was going to be through prayer and through repentance and, and, and as God wills. So God can heal, but often doesn't because he hasn't come back to renew the earth yet. And so we have to be honest about the reality about of the age in which we live. Suffering is the lot of the Christian. It is the lot in one sense of all humanity. And it is the way that Christians uh, testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has, when he comes back, he will put an end to suffering, to, to pain, to disease. But uh, that time is not yet. And so uh, I, to, to, to ask to be delivered from those things quite often, is not going to be the Lord's will. And I believe one reason this kind of showy gift isn't for today is because God doesn't spread the gospel and build the kingdom through spectacular signs, but, as we've already studied in 1 Corinthians 1, through the foolishness of preaching. God, you know, if we're if we're in our depravity, are dead in our sins, and it takes the quickening of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel to save, then we don't need to have flashy, miraculous signs thinking that's going to draw people in. Because, again, historically, that's never been the case. It wasn't the case even in the New Testament times. It was through the preaching of the word of God. And preaching isn't effective by Jesus removing our sickness. It is through suffering. Just because uh, he, for a short while, uh, allowed miraculous healing, doesn't negate the biblical fact that people are saved and the kingdom is spread through what the world sees is as silly, not through flashy miracles, but through the foolishness of preaching. And again, if, if, if many, I think, of the charismatics had their theology correct and they understood 1 Corinthians 1, they would realize that performing miracles doesn't convert anybody to start with. And again, the, 
the, the removal of the effects of sin will happen when Christ comes back, not as a rule today. To try and spread the gospel through miracles will always result in downplaying the gospel message. Why is it when Paul went to a new city, he did the hard work of debating in the synagogue as he expounded the Old Testament? He never had a miracle service, a healing service, when he went into a new city, right? Why are we all of a sudden going to change that? Why did Paul tell Timothy, instead of telling him, uh, instead of healing him, he told him to drink wine for his stomach's sake? I think it's because it was done at the very beginning. It was never meant to be the norm. Paul, Paul, those gifts were passing away. And we do not see Paul going around and just healing people. Which is something we do see Jesus did. We'll get into that in just a moment. In Second uh, Timothy, Timothy chapter 4 verse 20. Paul says, Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus whom is, who is ill at Miletus. Well, if, if, if Paul needed him, why didn't he heal him? Uh, he was an apostle after all. Right, well, I think it's because he, he didn't have the power. And he certainly at that point, he knew it wasn't God's will that he be healed. And so healing was to authenticate the apostles' message because they were the official witnesses. We are not. We have their message in the written word in our testimony testimonies are to proclaim their witness. The Great Commission was to go and to teach all nations and making them disciples, not to go and heal all nations. When it was used, it was never just to bring about physical health, but it was a platform to preach uh, to people. And so if God still gives this gift, it would be used in the same way it was then. And I am unaware of this ever being the case in point in, in church history. Now, I used to make the example, and I'll make it here, uh, although I don't, we don't have the same uh, thing. In, in my church in New York, we had a man, about one of my elders, had been in a wheelchair since he was 10. And, you know, we all know what happens to a body. When it sits, uh, for, you know, that, he was uh, 60, almost, about 70 even before I left. So he's, he's in that wheelchair for 60 years. And the atrophy of what happens to a body. Now, that, and those are the kind of people that when Jesus comes upon the scene and starts healing and doing miracles, and the apostles and some of the things that were recorded about them, that was the kind of per- person that they were healing. Man, remember the impotent man who who uh, was uh, laid there for was thirty eight years. All right, what happens to a body? These were not people who were had been in a wheelchair, had, you know, recently had walked, but now they're in a wheelchair, and that the, uh, the the preacher gets them all excited, gets the adrenaline going, and they're able to stand up out of their wheelchair for a few minutes and say, "Oh, they've been healed." And so I used to say, if, when somebody walks into this church and heals Brother Steve so that he can get up out of that wheelchair and walk, I'm all ears. If they've got something to say, I want to hear it because they have demonstrated the power of God and I want to hear what they've got to say. They have healed in a way that I read in the New Testament. 
I've yet to see that. I haven't seen anything that even would, would be begin to look like that. And I think, again, these things have to be taken into account. Until then, I believe we have the right to ask God to heal either through means of the doctors or miraculously. Sometimes, again, the doctor sees healing and they can't explain it. And I wouldn't doubt for a moment that's the Lord's uh, doing, uh, doing it miraculously. He might, he might not heal, but we are to be faithful in his providence. Whether if God doesn't heal what we would like him to heal, we, that's, that's his business. Our business is to obey the Lord and serve him joyfully anyway. He has never made any blanket promise to heal, and that is just how it is, especially when sickness is the, one of the primary ways that God has given us to be a testimony to this world. This idea of escaping affliction doesn't enhance our testimony. What enhances our testimony is when we are faithful in tribulation. That's why I don't particularly care for the, the, the verse of that song that says, um, help us to escape tribulation. Because um, I want to be faithful in tribulation. But I know that I have not been called to escape tribulation. There have been many claims of miraculous healings and many, and maybe some are true. As we said, I think there's, there's things that have happened when missionaries have taken the gospel message to a location that has never had it before. There's things that's happened there that I certainly wouldn't argue with someone that perhaps those, there were sign gifts given initially for whatever, for God's purposes. But it's never produced a revival or caused the world to stop and to take Christianity seriously. And it's not going to ever do that. And because it's not the gospel, God saves through the gospel. If Christians didn't suffer, everyone would jump on board. But few true conversions, I think, would would be the case. And I think it's one reason why there's some of the big churches are often charismatic or prosperity. Because people hope that if I go to that church or if I buy into whatever they're doing over there, it'll happen to me. And yet, what did Jesus say? If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to take up your instrument of death. And follow me. Uh, if you're, if you're, if you go to Christ because you're looking to get blessed in the flesh, uh, it's a, it's a false profession. You're not saved. And so we need to keep some of these things in mind. Alright. So that's my views on the gift of healing. The next one that we want to look at today is that of miracles. And of course, these are very close healings and miracles. Obviously, that kind of supernatural healing would be a miracle, but miracles would uh, involve other things other than just healing. We would define miracles as a supernatural intrusion into the natural world and its natural laws. It is clear, unmistakable divine intervention in the ordinary events of the day beyond natural law. So it is something that is obvious. It is not something that uh, someone says, this happened, but you can't verify. You, you're not sure what happened. Uh, it's certainly, if you had the gift of a miracle, it would be something that would be verifiable. And so, um, clearly Jesus and others had it early on. 
And I have no desire to dismiss miracles as if they never happen today. But God working through miracles, through prayer or otherwise, is far different than someone saying that I have the gift of miracles that I am can perform at my will. Our stance is much like then, and I say our, talk about mine, uh, uh, much like tongues and healings. This is uh, the specific ability was given to establish Christianity at the beginning until the full revelation had come and Christians had a good grasp that the old covenant had passed away, that things had changed, and the kingdom of God had been established. And I believe there's some exegetical reasons why I can say that. Um, so we've defined miracles, and so it is more than just God leading us through the Spirit's influence and opening doors and circumstances. So when I define miracle as a supernatural intrusion into the natural world, I don't mean by that that we see a really neat way that God has worked things out in our life. That's God's providence. And God does some amazing things that when we get, we see it happening, we say, oh my, how God worked all this together to produce that. And that's God's providence. But that's not what we're talking about as someone who has the gift of miracles. And just to keep that clear, it is also clear that sometimes Satan is allowed to work miracles, and so we need to have some discernment. And I think the Bible gives us the discernment we need. Equally clear and important is that miracles were never the norm. And this is this is very important, so, so catch this, please. We tend to have the idea, I think, maybe as kids anyway, and hearing all the fantastic stories of the Old Testament, that miracles were kind of the norm of the Old Testament. But, but it's just not the case. There were three times, or excuse me, there were two times in the Old Testament where there were really miracles. Moses, at the beginning of the establishment of the New Covenant, great change was taking place, a, a great, one of the great uh, acts of, of God's redemptive purposes in forming a nation and giving them the covenant. There was a the time of Moses and the miracles at that time, right? There's only one other time where you really have any uh, miracles going on. I mean, there were a few here and there with Joshua, but it was uh, with Elijah and Elisha. When uh, God was making it very clear that the covenant, the, the old covenant was coming to an end, that they were not obeying it, and that uh, God was going to have to send them off into Babylon, and he was going to have to send a new, uh, make a new covenant with them. And so that was the only time in which there was a lot of miracles, where it was a norm, you might say. People were seeing it all the time. And I think it's very important for us to understand that. So you got the beginning of the old covenant, and the foretelling of the end of that covenant. And then the only other time in scriptures where you have a bunch of miracles going on on a regular basis was when Jesus came and the apostles, right? The establishment of the new covenant. And I think that speaks volumes and that cannot be ignored. Why would the church, with the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the completed canon, need miracles to build up our faith. Again, because we know that at the end of the day, what builds up our faith is the Holy Spirit working in us through the preaching of God's word. 
That, that's what builds up our faith. And that's what the, the, the epistles say very plainly. I know we think in our minds that if somebody would just come in here and handle snakes, get bit, be healed, or, or do some big miracle or whatever, speak in tongues, that just builds up my faith. And, and, and that's what the charismatics say, that when they see these things, it just builds up my faith in someone. Oh, how we forget. Who saw miracles more than any generation? But the Jews in the wilderness, right? And they were a, Christ said, a faithless generation. Not a faithful, faithless. Because miracles don't impart spiritual life. They don't build up spiritual life. Only the Word of God does that in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't need them. Yeah, it'd be neat. <laughs> I'd love to see a miracle, a real miracle take place, I guess. But, I mean, I know that I don't need it. So, when we think about Jesus in the uh, apostolic age, when Jesus begins, in uh, John 2.11, this is the first of his signs. So, again, these miracles weren't just neat tricks. They were signs. A sign was to say something is happening. It's like a road sign. Something is, is is, is coming up. And of course, Jesus was, it was a sign that Jesus was a long-awaited Messiah. And he was there to start the kingdom of God, and to uh, redeem mankind. And so that, that the, when he uh, turned the water into wine, that was the first of his signs that he did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There's an interesting verse, if you go read through Mark 1, uh, Jesus, when he first, it says when he first appeared, it uses the term when, he, when, he, when Jesus came out. Now, of course, in our day and age, you know, I just basically wouldn't even use that terminology, but what it means is when he first, um, opened himself up as the Messiah, when he first, uh, came and he, uh, started his public ministry, right? It says that he, he was basically doing what we would challenge people today who say they have the gifts of healing and miracles. People would bring in him any and everybody who was sick and he healed them. And there wasn't, well, we got to have a special service and you've got to have enough faith. He healed them all. Anybody who came to him, it was like someone going to the hospital and just heal, emptying the hospital out. Jesus was more or less doing that. And that's where his fame first became uh, spread abroad. And people heard about that and people were starting to flock looking for him because he wanted to be healed. And I think it's in, uh, it's in Mark 1, I forget the verse. It says that people started coming to him and he gets up early in the morning with his disciples and they head out. Because he says, he says, I gotta go and preach. Cause that's really why he came, he says, to preach. And, and so he only had, he, he was gonna do miracles. That was a sign that he was, uh, that the Old Testament said that the Messiah would be able to do. And so he did those things. But he's, he was coming to preach. That was his ministry. Signs were just, or the miracles were just a sign to that end. And again, those are things that you need to be, we need to understand very carefully. In Acts uh, 2.22, uh, of course we know later on the, some of the apostles had this, uh, ability to, made a visual, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs 
that God did through him in your midst as yourselves know. So it reminds them that these aren't just works and miracles. They are signs. There's a purpose. And that's why I think we can use the term sign gifts because some had a special purpose that we no longer need today. In Hebrews, uh, a couple more verses here on this subject. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So there you see the apostles had this ability as well. But we know that, that even they were more subdued than Christ. Uh, none of them stopped the storm and, and calmed the sea, right? None of them really did miracles in nature. But they, they did obvious ones. In other words, they healed people who were lame. You know, and it wasn't psychosomatic. It was the real deal, right? Hebrew, notice Hebrews 2, 3 again. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, which was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard it, that is, the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So it reminds us that the reason that, that there was a period there early on where there were uh, magnificent, uh, spectacular works was to tell people something is going on. The, the, the long-awaited promise of the Old Testament has finally come true. Interesting. Well, Thank you. 
God gave special words of knowledge and prophecy before the canon was completed, but why in the world would we need that now? And so my take on the, and not just mine, but my position on the, what, what does the gift of prophecy mean today? And I would say it would be something similar to what we call preaching. We emphasize that because of its basic meaning, we should not think of it as always new revelation or even of speaking of future events. The idea of it means is to speak of future events. The idea that prophecy is basically just talking about future events is something that began in the Middle Ages in my studies. But that's really a Middle Ages thing, Middle Ages thing, and that 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 was not never how the Bible thought just a prophecy as foretelling. Now it, that was part of it, right? But but prophecy was considered someone standing up and proclaiming the word of the Lord, whether it had anything about future events or not. And so up until then, it, ju- it just meant to exhort the people of the word of God. Um, whether it was new or whether it was the word they already had. It, it was the, a prophet was one who proclaimed the word of God. And I think that that is primarily how we are to take it today. And that's why I say, I, in that sense, I would call myself a prophet. And I don't want to use that terminology again because it has all sorts of baggage with it. But I hopefully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have, are pro, is proclaiming forcibly, and I, and I mean, not, maybe that's not the best word, but authoritatively, unashamedly, without uh, reference to what the consequences might be, thus says the Lord, just as the uh, uh, prophets did in the Old Testament, They, this is what God says, and, and if you kill me for it, so be it. I've got to say this is what God has uh, said. And that's what I do, Lord willing. And then you should pray that would only, only be what I do. In uh, okay, I didn't write, I didn't put it on the screen, but First Timothy one eighteen, Paul says, "This I charge, I charge and trust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare." There, there, Paul, no doubt, spoke to Timothy things that Timothy didn't know that the church didn't know yet. Uh, elsewhere, he talks about tradition, oral traditions that were given you. I think those are things that that were going to be canonized, but hadn't been written down yet, or hadn't been people didn't know. Remember, it took a long time for the word for the New Testament to be circulated among the church, and it took a couple hundred years in some cases. So he's just saying, "Look, these are things that I have told you, I have prophesied, I've, I've taught you." It's not like I've gone to a palm reader and he's telling them my future. That's not what the point would be. And so in the Old Testament, and we're just about done here, one way to know a true prophet was whether it came true or not. And so clearly the idea of foretelling was in view in, in some cases. So if, if Jeremiah came along and says that the Babel, that Babylon's going to come and they're going to do this, and it didn't happen, and they were duty-bound to stone Jeremiah. He was a false prophet, right? So that there was that. And in, in one sense, that's true of me, although it might not always be easy to verify, but I'm standing up here and telling you, if you don't get right with God through Jesus Christ, uh, Christ is coming back, and he's going to throw you into hell. Kind of boil it all down, right? 
And if that's not true, I'm a false prophet, and God will take care of it. You know, you don't necessarily have the ability to do to, to know that. You know, of course, if I'm preaching the word of God to you, right? So there's, there's, there's an element to it. But there's a whole lot more than just telling you about what's going to happen in the future. It's about how it affects you now. And that's where the bulk of the prophets uh, talk about as well. And so think about it. While the prophets often warned of coming judgment, their primary point was to get people to repent and start doing right in light of future events. And is that not what I do every week? They didn't just appear to let people know about their future, like they were some sort of palm reader. We read of a few times where a king would ask a prophet, you know, are they going to win in battle? And 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 the, the, the false prophets would say yes, the, the good prophet would say no, right? And then that's how it worked out. That's certainly what took place. It was an active, they were actively uh, talking about God's will. And, and that's what, again, what a prophet does. He, this is the will of God towards you. And it's all in light of standing before him someday. It, it's all part of the, of, of the process. But the point was, should I do this or that? Not tell me the future. Uh, so I don't have to rely upon God's word. I don't have to live by faith. I just want to know what's happening tomorrow. No, that, that's not what a prophet does. A prophet says, look, this is what God's will for you is today, and there are consequences if you do not uh, submit to it. And if we keep this in mind, when it comes to the idea of miracles and prophecies, then we can see why these are not for today and why we have no need for them. Because they distract us from the word and become our focus. Not the servants, but they become the focus. Let's face it. If I stand up to, in, 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 next week, if I get up here and I say, okay, look, it's going to be a little bit different today. I, I haven't studied the word of God and I'm going to try to explain it to you. God has given me a message. And I'm going to tell you that message. So this is straight from God through me. I have, I have placed my words that Sunday in a completely different category to some degree than this. And I've, and I've taken your focus away from this to whatever I'm going to tell you today. And if I tell you something that can already be found in the Word of God, then what in the world was I, what was I saying to begin with? Right? As a prophecy simply means you speak for much, I believe, like preaching. If we forget about new revelation and telling the future, we, we don't have to get all, uh, you know, confused about prophecy and make it to be more than it is. And you can also see, and we'll stop there today, but you can see why it's important that this is something that continues because not everybody has the ability, the gift, if you will, to, Again, there's, there's a gift of studying God's word, but there's a, there's a certain gift of being able to proclaim it, to do so without fear. I, I think a big gift of prophecy, of a true prophet, in, in this sense that I'm talking about, is to get up here and say what's got to be said, even if it means that somebody in the church won't be there the next week because they don't want to hear it. Because there are a lot of guys who will not you know, there's a lot of churches right here who, if you go there, you're not going to necessarily hear anything wrong. But it's what they don't say. 
There's certain parts of Scripture they're not going to touch because they know the consequences of it. They're not they're not prophets in a biblical sense. I don't think they're called of God. And I'm not saying that all of us can sometimes fear man and, and stumble. And there might be times where I will, you know, not say something I probably should have because I know how it's going to be. But I'm talking about saying, look, this is what the Lord says, and that's more important than what you want to hear. And hopefully we all want to hear the word of God. But it just shows you why you need to pray for me and Jeff and why these things are important. Because uh, the prophet, yeah, I believe prophecy is still a gift of God. But understand what it means and the importance of it and the beauty of it. And I think the Lord will certainly bless us. Well, so, all right, I thank you for your attention. And again, if you're always, uh, always happy to answer any questions or, or discuss these things further if, if you need to do so. But you just missed. Thank you very much.